Romans chapter 3. I trust you have been singing with the Spirit and with understanding the familiar words that we've shared together. I trust that we'll see some of the precious truth underneath these testimonies and confessions as we read in God's Word today. I want to read briefly today from chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, just the six verses from verse 21 to verse 26. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Amen. We trust the Lord will add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. I'll ask you with that word open and read to bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we today again pause and acknowledge your presence with us. We've gathered in Jesus' name. You promised to be present even where two or three are gathered. We know you as God are everywhere present. But the peculiar sense of that presence, an acknowledgement and experience of that presence is what we need. And Lord, if it be an experience of grace to open blind eyes today, Lord, if it be an experience of grace to encourage a, a, a weary heart today, we ask that you would, by that acknowledged, sensed, and experienced presence, draw near to us one and all. Lord, the preacher certainly needs help today, but every hearer needs help. And so we pray that you would give the help that each of us needs. So prosper these moments. Let us not take them lightly. And we pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What we have read together today, these six verses, have been described by commentators in the loftiest of terms. Lloyd-Jones, to my memory, I read seven of his sermons on these six verses in the last, well... Many hours, I suppose. Lloyd-Jones, three times in those seven messages, referenced another, whom he never named, as describing these verses as the Acropolis of the Christian faith. Leon Morris, in his commentary, puts it less colorfully, and yet perhaps more boldly, as he describes these words as the most important paragraph that has ever been written. 
ponder that. Others we could quote even from the unsaved realm marvel at the significance of these words to be sure. And so to put it plainly, it would be hard to overstate the importance of the words that we give our attention to today. To be honest, it's somewhat difficult to decide how to handle this section. Nearly every word is worthy of a whole sermon. And yet then we run the risk of failing to see the forest for the trees. There are issues that arise even in coming to the particular words. I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones. He took nearly a whole sermon to deal with the issue of modern translations that do not use the word Paul used here, propitiation. Now, Lloyd-Jones didn't do that out of a slavish belief that a particular translation, the authorized version, has claims to inspiration. There are places where he is critical of words the translators chose and perhaps even would reference a different version. But he mentions the spirit of the age, and of course this is coming up the better part, at least a very heavy half to two-thirds of a century ago that modern scholarship and even evangelicals were trying to come out from under propitiation and what it implies, and of course we'll speak of that a little bit later. It would be good to tarry over such issues, but I want us rather to not lose the flow of the argument, to grasp the whole of what Paul is saying to here. And so I want us to consider all of these six verses together today. I don't know that we may not stop back in for a thought on something from them again. But it's quite evident that a a new major division of the book begins here. In reality, we could say that this new section of the book is really the main purpose and subject of the whole book of Romans itself. Because the section that begins here in verse 21 continues right through to the end of the book. There are ways in which the section we've just finished studying from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 is prelude to what we begin to consider here. In chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 we saw the apostle very plainly. It's almost like he was sitting in EN 101. I guess Paul didn't take English when he went to school. He knew a few other languages. But the thesis statement is just clearly set forth, bracketed, highlighted, put in bold. It's clear. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just by faith shall live. There's the theme, that's the message Paul is bringing. But before he can unpack that, to use our modern terms, he goes to the next verse and says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he, for the next two chapters begins to unfold and proclaim and defend and assert that awful and yet quite evident doctrine of the fall of man. And we saw the sobering conclusion to that argument in the verses that end in verse 20 of our chapter. 
We saw last time we were together and considered this awful conclusion of universal guilt. We see all the pieces of that that are put before us. There was universal accountability. Gentiles, Jews, all were recipients of God's law, some to lesser and greater degrees, but they were recipients of revelation. The law spoke plainly, speaks plainly to them, to us all. Universal accountability. None can plead ignorance. Universal sin. The transgression of that law is evident. None can deny it. Universal condemnation that is the result of that transgression, that sin. And then the the last piece of it, verse 20 brings us, if we read that verse again, therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Universal helplessness. There's nothing guilty lawbreakers can do to justify themselves. That's where we're left. That's where we are. When we come to the opening words of verse 21, here, one message I listened to this week on this whole message on those two words, the hinge of history. We might take it further. The hinge of eternity. But now. And really if you were to look side by side with Paul's thesis statement, 1, 16 and 17, and the opening part of these six verses that we've read, Paul is repeating what he has said there. He fleshes it out a little more. In his opening statement of the thesis, he he highlights, he really punches the fact that this justification, this righteousness from God is by faith from start to finish. It's by faith. And so he's put it positively there in his thesis. But he's brought the negative side of that in the conclusion to this prelude of depravity. The negative side is, is that this righteousness from God is apart from the law. It is by faith, but it can't be and could never be by the law. That is our attempts to keep God's law. And so now as we come to Romans 3.21, Paul begins to unfold the glorious truth that is overflowing within his soul. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, he repeats again what he said in chapter 1. It's not a new thing. There's only one gospel. All the Old Testament writers, all the Old Testament prophecies, all the Old Testament diverse ways and diverse manners that he revealed himself, they all look forward to the coming of this Christ. And now that Christ has come, we see God's righteousness declared. Put forth, as we'll see more fully, I trust, in the moments that follow. I have pangs of guilt. <laughs> Not pondering, just pausing on those two words for an entire message. But now. I ask you to recall, maybe you weren't all here for all of the particular messages through 
that opening section, the revelation of wrath. But ponder the truth that he begins or comes to a conclusion rather in that section just with a rapid fire quotation of Old Testament scriptures. None righteous, no, not one. Those descriptions of the open sepulcher, the deceit, the depravity of man, and then that rightful concluding statement that every mouth may be stopped. There's no one, no fallen son of Adam that can say anything to clear his own name. And he's demonstrated that very powerfully in the whole of the second chapter. That self-righteous religious man that might say amen to the condemnation of those wicked worldlings in chapter 1. But who art thou, O man? You might say you're not guilty of these particular crimes, but are you free of them? And he says we before proved, both Jew and Gentile, they're all under sin. And this catalog of sin, to stop every mouth, leave every man as we came to that conclusion, all those things universally true, universal helplessness. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. If God doesn't intervene, all are lost, period. All are condemned, period. And so those words, but now. And Paul begins to unfold. He comes with a statement again of his theme. Here he, he will flesh it out a little more than he did in the statement of his thesis in chapter 1. And yet then all the things that he's going to say in this paragraph... He's going to flesh out a little more in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. Here is the gospel. Here is this righteousness from God. Here is the doctrine of how guilty, helpless sinners can be justified. And is it to that theme that I want us to look today? This righteousness from God. We call it in our doctrinal terminology justification. And for all of the, I say, importance even of individual words throughout this paragraph, I want us to come to consider the argument of this paragraph today in its entirety. Because it is, I would confer with Morris, I don't have nearly as much reading, experience, scholarship, learning as he to make the statement. But I certainly don't have any degree of scholarship to challenge his statement. The most important paragraph ever written. I want to look at this righteousness from God today under these three headings. These, in some ways, are doctrinal headings. And yet every one of these doctrines is evident in the passage. We're going to look at its source. We're going to look at its ground. 
And we're going to look at its means, its source, its ground, and its means. I may pause at another point to bring a a piece of emphasis here, but I want you to think as we even consider these three aspects of this righteousness from God, of the Trinitarian focus, of the very three things that we've mentioned and pulled from this text. Because as we look at its source, its source we'll see quite plainly set before us and simply is God's grace. I was taken back in reading one commentator that paused and with what I felt perhaps at first blush almost too strong an emphasis because he singled out the Father in this aspect of the gospel truth. And it is entirely possible and often right for us as we read just the generic, can we say that term, word God in Scripture. They would have the triune God in view But yet so often, and as is evident here, it is the Father that is in view. Here's the source of this righteousness from God. It's ground, we will see. The source is God's grace. It's ground is Christ's work. And he comes with very particular emphasis and even particular terms to describe Christ's work in providing this righteousness from God. And then its means. Its means, as he said in his thesis, from faith to faith, from start to finish, it's by faith. It's not by works. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. But faith, and will come I trust today to emphasize it. Faith itself is not a work. It is not our righteousness. And sadly, many evangelicals in the last century in particular have confused that and preached faith as a righteousness. Faith as the work that we do that secures salvation for us. Faith even is something God accepts in lieu of perfect righteousness. And that's not the gospel. That's not what Paul teaches in Romans at all. But of course, if we consider the means then, if faith isn't the ground of our justification, if it is but the means of justification, here we find the third person of the Trinity. In the application of this righteousness from God to the hearts and lives of those that believe. Because faith itself, we discover, is not something we are capable of producing. It is that that is wrought in us. It is the inevitable response 
to a supernatural work of grace by the Spirit to breathe life into those that are dead in trespasses and sins. And so I say when we look at this paragraph, these three aspects of righteousness from God, these three perspectives, these three parts of the doctrine of justification, its source, its ground, and its means. And so let us look at Paul's gospel today. Again, with embarrassing brevity. And yet Paul has briefly stated it. It's a paragraph that can be read in, I didn't count how many seconds it takes, but not many. But what is its source? We read again, as he introduces himself, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. It's made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We may, as I mentioned earlier, pause at some point to give a little attention to a word study, and that is law. This paragraph and the one that follows, there are at least three different ways God use, or Paul uses the term. God, by inspiring Paul, uses the term. And there's that moral law, that standard, that righteousness. There is a reference here to Old Testament revelation, which is part of our verse 21, the second part of the verse. This righteousness from God that's apart from the law is witnessed by the law, by the Old Testament and by the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. There's a restatement of 1, 16 and 17. And then he says, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's the summary of 1, 18 to 3, 20. The revelation of wrath. But then he says, that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified. And here's our point for this opening perspective. What is the source of this righteousness from God? In order to make it clear, Paul puts it forth two times very powerfully. He says here, being justified freely. And he says here, being justified by His grace. Here I say is where we come to a place where a word study would be warranted. But let me just cut to the chase. We can think here, and we would, write, we would be right if we would refer from the word freely, that is, without cost. This gospel, this grace, this righteousness from God is given freely. We're not sung heart's tremendous hymn today without money. Come and buy. It is free in that sense. But this word freely goes deeper than this. I say it's worthy of a, a full word study in itself, but if I can just give you one other reference. In John 15 and verse 25, as the Savior speaks of Himself and He speaks of those that would not receive Him, He says, they hated Me without a cause. That last little phrase, without a cause, is our word. 
freely. The source of our justification is without a cause. Obviously, it's without a cause in us. The same way in which justification is apart from the law, apart from the works of the law. It's apart from many of our law works. Of course, we'll come to see in chapter 5 in particular, it is quite seriously with reference to the law and the work of Christ. Well, so it is here. It is quite seriously, as I struggle for the word, with a cause. The cause being the desire and purpose of God to save. But it is without a cause in us. There is nothing in us. All that he described, all the evil that we see in the concluding verses of chapter 1, all the helplessness that we see described in those concluding parts of his argument in chapter 3, all that leaves us completely shut up to any excuse. There's no cause in us. There will be nothing in the day of judgment as saints are welcomed into the presence of God through which they can say, God did this because I... Where is boasting? He's going to say in the next paragraph. This gospel of grace excludes boasting because there's no cause in us that has made God do it. The cause is entirely in Him. Being justified freely. Unless we miss it, Paul comes hurriedly on with a second underscoring of the truth by His grace. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. I trust these are terms you Sunday school teachers perk up that even our little ones are learning. Mercy and grace. It's a little simplistic and yet it gets to the heart and very valuable. Mercy in God is what brings Him not to give us what we do deserve. We deserve the eternal expression of His wrath. And it is by His mercy that we don't receive that. But grace goes beyond. It's distinguished from mercy in that grace does give what isn't deserved. If you have been like many of us have at some point in your Christian experience caught in the transition from, I call it sometimes, broad spectrum evangelicalism 
I don't know if evangelicalism and antibiotics have a lot in common, but the broad spectrum term just seemed to fit one time when I was looking at the ecclesiastical landscape. But if you have come out of broad spectrum evangelicalism into what we, I think, rightly call the doctrines of grace, and you come to understand the unmerited favor in each of these aspects. Those infamous or famous, whatever your mood happens to be at the time, five points of the doctrines of grace are just a view of one gospel as it is viewed from different perspectives with different questions, different pieces of the doctrine. But it is right that we speak of them as the doctrines of grace. Because this righteousness from God has its source in God's grace. It's freely given. There's no cause in us that would force or even incline God toward providing this. He is its source entirely. But let me come quickly to our second thought and the second Perspective Paul gives us on this doctrine of the righteousness from God. And that's its ground. Christ's work. Paul uses three particular terms as he unfolds what is true here. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The first window we get into the ground of our justification is redemption. Again, a term that is worthy of a word study in its own right. But Paul here borrows a term from commerce. It's a term that was used in the Old Testament Scriptures in many different ways. It's a term that was used in, in the secular world in other ways as well. It was used often of slaves being redeemed being purchased. The, 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 the word has, as part of its meaning, release. You see some of the commentators going back even into secular usage of the term, or the root of this term, of things being loosed. But if you flesh it out, you see its usage, particularly in the Scripture. Redemption has the meaning of being released set free by the payment of a price. And then, of course, you can recall Peter's description. We're not redeemed. We're not freed from the guilt and the punishment of our sins with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so the ground of this and the work of Christ is a redemption. Release from the penalty of our sins by the payment of a price, a ransom. The Son of Man came to give His life a ransom for many. If we can think of bondage, 
We can think of that which holds us and we're powerless to free ourselves from it. Redeemed. Set free by the payment of a price. Here is one of the terms Paul uses for this righteousness from God. Is redemption involved. And then he wants to unfold this, unpack this a little further. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. And that's where so many other versions seek to pull back from using the word propitiation, which Paul does use. Expiation or atonement or other substitutes are given, and those other terms are not untrue. Our sins are expiated. But propitiation has a particular point of reference. Propitiation involves wrath. And that's where Lord Jones, not so much as it were in conflict with translators, though perhaps giving warnings of their giving in a little bit to the, the tenor and spirit of the times, being uncomfortable with the thought, with the presentation of God as a God of wrath. Trying to come out from under that. What has Paul spent from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 carefully articulating? How's it start? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He finishes out that first chapter, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Paul wasn't trying to hide from the truth and the reality that the true God is a God of wrath. Wrath against sin. And you remember what we suggested along the way. I can't remember what particular message or passage. But when we think of that, if we would even be tempted to listen to or incorporate something of the world's thinking there and want to somehow shy away from that, what is God angry at? And we have to be careful with this. He loves the sin and hates the or yeah no, hates the sin and loves the sinner mentality. God is angry with the wicked every day. The Old Testament even tells us. But God's wrath is expressed against that which hurts us. Sin is an insult to Him. 
Sin is rebellion against Him. But it can, in the ultimate sense, injure Him. He's God. But it has ruined us. And God's wrath is revealed against that which ruined us. No, we don't come out from under the doctrine of God's wrath. We don't want to somehow get away from this word propitiation. I've heard some argue that, well, it's a pretty big word and it's an old word. It's not used much. People don't understand it. Well, if we're engaged in the work of Bible translation, are we better fixed? Well, Jones I forget the exact language, but he said they engaged in a little interpretation there instead of translation. Wouldn't we be better off to teach the meaning of a word instead of go off to something else and leave that meaning behind? Well, again, a word study would be warranted here. Can I give you something we suggested actually years ago? looking at the doctrines of grace. But John Owen, the great Puritan scholar of such high reputation, quite simply defines and describes propitiation with these four aspects. There's an offended party. There's an offending party. There's an offense that's been committed by the offending party that has offended the offended party. But then there's a fourth thing. There's a means of removing the offense. Because that's what propitiation is. And that's one of the words Paul uses in this paragraph now instead of the sentence summary of the Gospel. Righteousness from God. He has set forth Christ as the propitiation, as the means by which His wrath is removed from us. That's the good news. But let me hurry and come to a third word, a third perspective Paul gives us on the ground of this justification, this righteousness from God. He speaks of it with reference to redemption. Being set free by the payment of a price. He speaks of it with reference to propitiation. The removal of wrath through faith in the blood of Jesus. And he also speaks of it with reference to vindication. Read with me here. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. It is this double reference to that declaration, this setting Christ forth, that leads to that wonderful conclusion to this paragraph. That He might be just and the justifier of him that believeth. In Jesus. We're not going to try and work through part of the debate 
What is the meaning here of sins that are past? The remission. Boy, Jones had almost a whole sermon on, he defended the AV on propitiation, rightly. He challenged it here. The word here underneath has the idea of something that's passed over. Not merely remitted, but something that's passed over. It's a term that would have been used in a will. Let's say the rich uncle passes away. And at the reading of the will, all those anxious nieces and nephews are sitting around. And then there's nephew A and nephew B and niece 1 and niece 2 and niece 3 and nephew 4 didn't get anything. And then What about that guy who's passed over? Sins that are passed over. And these sins that are passed. Is it a reference to sins that are passed in the life of the believer? Is it a reference to the sins of the Old Testament? I seem to cast my lot in with those that lean toward that because what's in view here, and if you think even of the timing, Paul is an apostle of the gospel. He's speaking, we, was it, what did we read? It Was it in Corinthians we read already today? Upon whom the ends of the world are come. Oh, it's in Acts. But this, this last age, the fulfillment of the promise of the ages is Jesus, and He's come now. What the Gospel does is it vindicates God. Because as it is framed as Paul's preaching at Mars Hill, the sins that God winked at. You work through that passage with a dispensationalist sometime. God is by the gospel vindicating himself. He has not let sin go unpunished. He just withheld the, the full and final meeting out of eternal punishment. Because he knew his own gracious purpose. That for those whom he gave to Christ before the foundation of the world, there was coming a point in time, in the fullness of time, that the Son would come. That the Son would voluntarily take that wrath upon himself. And God is vindicated in that He hasn't ignored sin when He passed over them for a season, as it were. Because He remembered all of them when He laid them on His Son and poured His wrath out there. I was taken back, I mentioned at the beginning of the message that this paragraph, it's not as it were on the surface, but I think underneath Trinitarian meditations are everywhere. And again, these are waters that are very deep to swim in. They're limits. 
But our doctrine of God is, is clearly revealed in Scripture. One God. Eternally existing in three persons. That brings us into some necessary definitions of personhood. If there's one God, there's one eternal essence, this omnipotent being, this eternal being, and yet three persons. If part of personhood is individual thought, the person's never working out of harmony, never working with contrary wills, And how can we bring alongside the doctrine of omniscience? But if the source of this righteousness from God is the Father, if the Father put forth the plan, awful as it was, and the Son says, yes. I will do that. And the Spirit says, Amen. I will apply that to every one of these that are given to Him. God is vindicated in every way. He's just And He justifies the ungodly. How can He be just and justify the ungodly? The blood of Jesus. Here's the ground of this righteousness from God. But let us come finally and very quickly to the third piece of this gospel that Paul puts before us. And that is its means. And of course, we've already referenced it as the Spirit says, yes, I will apply this. Three times through this paragraph, this righteousness without the law, it is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe... God is just and the justifier. Not of all that are described in verse 23 who have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What pause we could give even on those phrases. But He's the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The means of this righteousness from God becoming ours. His faith. This will be unfolded in chapters 4 and 5 particularly. But let us understand and underscore. Faith is not the righteousness from God. Faith is not what God accepts in lieu of perfect righteousness. He wouldn't be just if He justified people based on something other than perfect righteousness. 
Faith is the vehicle through which we appropriate this righteousness. Faith is the means. And if you look through the Scriptures, and can I venture out and say, if you look through your own heart as a believer, perhaps our hearts and our minds need some education through the Word, but the Spirit working in us lets us say amen to the Word when we receive it. Faith has as its peculiar quality that it abandons hope in self. Faith is back up where every mouth is stopped and all the world becomes guilty before God. Faith is back where by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Faith is recognizing universal helplessness and willing to underline it a few more times with reference to self. As Paul himself described himself as the chief of sinners. Faith has as its peculiar quality that it abandons hope in self and places its hope, joyful expectation in that ground of justification, Christ's work for me. Well, I say we have hastily, embarrassingly, perhaps wrongly tried to handle all six of these verses together. But I did not want us to miss the flow of the argument. Paul's going to write in the same way he in one paragraph has fleshed out a little more what he wrote in one sentence in his thesis. He's now going to take the pieces of that paragraph and a chapter at a time unpack these things. But this righteousness from God, this doctrine of justification, this gospel, this good news for sinners is that this has its source in God's grace. Without a cause in us, it's all of a willing God. It's ground in Christ's work. Redemption, propitiation, vindication and then it's means the spirit applying that to us by working faith in us to believe to desire this Jesus and to take God at his word there I say as a poor summary of the most important paragraph that has ever been written. God saves sinners. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come would humbly ask as we have 
thought about the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in history. The most important thing for eternity. How can we who were created in the image of God, designed to enjoy you forever, and who so awfully sinned against you, and are left condemned and helpless, that you found a ransom. You are a great God of wonders. And the wonders of your grace above your other wonders shines. It didn't present a difficulty to omniscience and omnipotence to speak this universe into existence. It doesn't present a difficulty for you to uphold all things by the word of your power. Every tug of the gravity of every star and galaxy and who knows what greater and bigger. No difficulty for you to control. But our sin presented a problem that only infinite wisdom, infinite power, and infinite sovereign grace could solve. And all the persons of our triune God said yes. It is by the grace and power of your Spirit that we are brought to say yes and amen to such a gift as this. Lord, seal this truth. Take well-known truths and cause joy and rejoicing in them. And Lord, even for these young hearts and lives here, pieces of this truth line upon line to be written upon the souls. Graciously, help us today to leave and even in this Sabbath ponder the wonders of what we have read and spoken of today. We ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.